Welcome, everybody, to my very own Storytellers, uh, or what I'm calling my Life in 30 Songs. I want to thank Joe Bunn for kind of coming up with the uh, concept uh, for this and uh, also for giving me permission to uh, do it myself. I I didn't want to steal Joe's idea, but uh, he gave his thumbs up. And and I'd also like to encourage uh, so many people that I know, anyone who I... I know who uh, whose musical kind of knowledge and opinion I really respect. I would love to hear your take on this concept. Kind of, you know, walk us through the early part or your entire life if you choose, and and tell us what songs kind of meant something to you along the way and and you came to appreciate and why and and things like that i'd really love to hear so uh, i'm going to approach this uh project kind of in chronological order but not in chronological order the way the songs were released but more in chronological order of the way i kind of came to appreciate them and be aware of them and and how they quote unquote impacted my life if you will and the reason why i presented that way will be obvious as we get a little bit further. I've broken this up into two parts, and just coincidentally, but fittingly, I think the part one takes me to about 1987, and part two starts in 88, uh, which is significant. That was a very significant year in my life, 1988, is uh, is when I moved out of Queens and started my DJing career, my mobile DJing career at Star DJ. So uh, as it turned out, as I laid this project out, the fact that part one took me right up to uh, 87 and part two begins in 88 was was sort of coincidental but fitting. I was born in 1966, and uh, so as I'm coming of, uh, of age a little bit as an adolescent, or I guess you'd call it pre-adolescent, 10 or 11 years old, my first phase musically was a kiss phase. And, and I think for a lot of uh, young boys my age or right around that age, that was typical. I think Kiss, you know, as I look back on them now, they're not the greatest musicians and probably not the greatest songwriters, but they had a lot of appeal for a young boy because not only did they have that hard rock sound, but, you know, they mixed in a little bit of that, um, I don't know, what would you call it, cartoonish, superhero, demonic kind of stuff with the makeup and the costumes and and mix in the stage craft of fire and spitting blood and, and the explosions and all of that. And it was kind of a, a cool thing. I never got to see them as a kid. I did go when they kind of reformed in the early 2000s and I went to a Kiss concert and it was definitely like reliving my youth. So I'm going to start this project off with a Kiss song from the Rock and Roll Over album. The song is called Take Me and I have a very funny memory uh, associated with this song. I remember singing it one day in my house and my grandmother, my, my mom's mom, told me uh, stop that she scolded me she said stop singing that song and I didn't understand it at the time I mean I I was just singing lyrics that that I had heard but as I listened back years later I kind of understood I thought the opening line was about a firework but I could see why my grandmother didn't want me singing this uh, song and especially this opening lyric so here's the first song in uh, in my storytellers this is take me by kiss Yeah. 
So Christmas of 1977, my older brother Mark and I were still sharing a bedroom at that point, and we receive, I guess we were co-recipients of a uh, a very cool Christmas gift that year, and it was a stereo for our bedroom. And uh, it's a gift that I got a ton of usage out of. I used to listen to that stereo all the time. One of us also must have received the Bat Out of Hell album, the Meatloaf album, Bat Out of Hell, because I have, I don't know whether that was Mark or I, but I have vivid, vivid memories of that winter. So that would be winter of 1978, sitting in my bedroom in on my beanbag chair, which again, remember, it was late 70s, so... I think every bedroom had a beanbag chair at that point. Listening to Bad Out of Hell nonstop over and over and over and over again and playing my little Coleco football game, that little handheld football game. And holy shit, I spent hours and hours and hours uh, in that bedroom listening to that. Um, so it's something I'll never forget. And that, and that uh, album is certainly ingrained in my memory. I also have very vivid memories of this next song that I'm going to play for you, uh, for crying out loud, of thinking, and I know this is kind of a weird thought for an 11-year-old or 12-year-old at the time, but I remember thinking, will I ever love a woman as much as the the singer of this song loves, obviously, the woman that the song is about? I know that's an odd thought for, for, um, for somebody that young, but I remember thinking that. And there's also another veiled penis reference in this uh, song that I'm sure you'll catch. Uh, and again, I doubt I caught it as a 12-year-old, but the but the line, um, what is it, my faded Levi's bursting apart, uh, probably didn't understand that as a 12-year-old, but I certainly came to understand it later. I didn't get in trouble for singing that one out loud, but uh, I'm sure if my grandmother heard me, she might have. Here is for crying out loud from Bad Out of Hell. I was lost till you were found And I never knew how far down I was falling before I reached the bottom I was cold and you were fire And I never knew how the fire could be burning On the edge of the asphalt And now the chilly California wind Is blowing down our bodies and we're sinking deeper and deeper in the chilly California sand. Oh, I know you belong inside my aching heart. And can't you see my faded Levi's bursting apart? And don't you hear me cry? Don't you hear me screaming? How was I to know? I'm in the middle of nowhere
that same time 77 into 78 you know i'm hanging around uh, with a lot of school buddies of mine and and we're all kind of i think discovering music sometimes from our older siblings uh sometimes maybe from parents or what have you and i vividly remember uh, a school friend of mine schoolmate uh who i don't even remember his name but i remember going over to his house one day uh, after school, and he had uh, a copy of the Queen album, News of the World. And if you remember that album, not only is it a great album, but the artwork, it was a gatefold album, which means it kind of opened up. And, you know, on the cover, there's the the shot of the robot who has scooped up the members of Queen and um, and, and kind of has them in the palm of his hand. I think if I remember when you opened it up, one of them was falling over. And then the inside of the gatefold was terrifying for a, a young boy, I, w- I would say, uh, because it is literally that same huge robot who has ripped open the roof of, I guess, a Queen concert. And people are literally just running in sheer panic. And it's an image that I probably haven't seen it in about 30 years. But man, I... I still remember it vividly to this day uh the album was great the artwork is great and that's something we obviously miss with uh you know once we went to cds the artwork on album covers got a little smaller and and nowadays when you download music there really is no artwork to speak of so the artwork on news of the world was just tremendous and the music was great so uh, here's sheer heart attack well, Do you know? 
wow i just love the way that song ends i always have man if it was up to me if uh, if i was able to just invent everything about the world every song would end cold maybe not as cold as sheer heart attack but um man every song would just end on a big like that and uh fuck fade outs i I never understood why anybody would record uh, a fade out of a song it just doesn't make any sense i mean when artists play live they obviously never fade out their songs so uh, why would you do it in a studio? I just don't understand. But, I, man, I've always loved it, that ending of uh, Sheer Heart Attack. Anyway, we continue on. Uh, it is 1978, and Saturday Night Fever comes out in the movie theater. It was released uh, R-rated. So, of course, as a 12-year-old, I was not able to see it. But uh, a year after its initial theatrical release, they actually released a PG version of Saturday Night Fever. And so uh, I got to see that as, I guess, a 13-year-old at that point. And, you know, I was too late to the whole disco thing. I, I was too young to be going to the clubs. And, um, and and by the time I got to club going age, disco was already dead. So I can't say that I lived through the, the disco uh, movement. But I do have to say I, I appreciated the movie when I first saw it as a young kid. And uh, I've seen it multiple, multiple times since. And um, I really don't think there's anything as cool as Tony Manero and uh, what's the woman, the the character's name, Stephanie Mangano, I think it is. There's nothing as cool as the two of them dancing to More Than a Woman uh, towards the end of that movie. You know, Tony's got the bandage on his cheek from the uh, brawl they were just in, him and his buddies. And, um, and they win the competition. And... Um, I'm sorry if you never saw the movie. Um, Spoiler alert, but um, here it is. Here's more than one.
So at some point in 1980, I started playing Dungeons and Dragons, uh, first with my older brother uh, and some of his friends. And then uh, later we were actually playing a, a game at uh, at our house. I know my dad was involved and some of his friends. So it was sort of a dorky, geeky thing to do if you ever, if you're old enough and you ever played uh, Dungeons and Dragons, it's uh you know, it's probably not the coolest thing in the world, but it's something I really got into as a young kid. And something I associate musically with that time was my older brother had uh, a cassette tape of Pink Floyd's The Wall, and he used to play that for some reason nonstop while we were playing Dungeons & Dragons. So I've always kind of associated those two things together with each other. That album was huge in 1980. It was ubiquitous. You heard it everywhere, not just the hits, but on on AOR, you heard all of the songs from the wall. I'm going to play a song called Young Lust. I'm thinking back to myself at, in, you know, as a 14-year-old, 1980. I'm still a virgin. This whole sexual thing, I'm still kind of consumed with and thinking a lot about, but uh, haven't, haven't been able to do it yet. And so a song like Young Lust off of uh, The Wall probably spoke to me on a number of different levels. Uh, so here's that one.
December 31st, 1980, my older brother takes me to my first concert ever, Bruce Springsteen out at the uh, Nassau Coliseum. The river had uh, come out a few months earlier, and uh, Mark, I think, had bought a copy of it because I don't remember buying uh, a copy of it myself, so I'm sure... Uh, my older brother Mark had bought the uh, album, and we used to listen to it a lot, nonstop, when it first came out. I'm not the biggest Bruce Springsteen fan, but as it turns out, my first live show ever, my first concert ever was Bruce Springsteen, thanks to uh, my older brother. And if memory serves me correct, and Mark, I'm not trying to get you in trouble here, but I think Mark also uh, introduced me to marijuana that night. I'm pretty sure that's the first time I ever smoked pot. I think the um, statute of limitations has run out on on mom and dad uh, scolding you for that, Mark. So hopefully I haven't given you up. Uh, But the show was great. It was probably the worst concert to see for your first time ever uh, as a concert because very few live shows have ever lived up to that. You know, Springsteen is is known for putting on these three hour epic marathon concerts and playing every single hit and and all that. But uh, multiply that by the fact that it was New Year's Eve. And I remember he took the show right to midnight. If memory serves me correct, he did uh, Twist and Shout right at midnight and uh, brought the house down. Uh, but the song I'm going to play for you is Off of the River. Uh, it's called Hungry Heart. Like I said, I'm not the biggest Springsteen fan in the world, but I certainly appreciate his um his musicianship, and his productivity through the years. Uh, So here's probably one of my favorite Bruce songs and uh, certainly my favorite one off of The River. Here's Hungry Heart.
So I told you my first phase was a kiss phase, and um, my next phase and the next group that I really got into and really loved, and this also had a lot to do with uh, Dungeons and Dragons, was uh, Blue Oyster Cult, and I really got into them big time. Again, their their music had a lot of. Uh, kind of mystical imagery to it and that probably um appealed to me as a young man uh i'm gonna play my favorite by far blue oyster cult song it's still one that i keep on my uh, iphone and and in my playlist that i like to run with and work out to because it just pumps me up uh non-stop uh song is called burning for you and i just love the the imagery and and the line time to play b-sides one of my faves <laughs>
September 19th, 1981, Simon and Garfunkel did a free concert in Central Park. Um, and I wasn't a big Simon and Garfunkel fan at the time. I really hadn't been turned on to a lot of their music yet, but uh, it just seemed like a cool thing to do. And I remember asking my parents and uh, they let me go. And then I remember asking my parents, hey, could I sleep out the night before? Because a few of my buddies were and they let me do that too, which I was really kind of surprised about. So it was uh, kind of goes down in my memory as kind of like my Woodstock uh, sleeping out under the stars. It was a beautiful night in Central Park. And then as it turned out, I wound up being maybe if my memory serves me correctly, like 20 feet from the stage. It was an epic concert. Uh, they released the um, they released an album of it uh, a year or so after. And so I've been able to relive it many, many times through the years because it is a, a favorite album of mine. I'm going to play the solo Paul Simon song from that concert late in the evening. One of my absolute favorite songs. I've, I probably wasn't a huge Paul Simon fan at the time in uh, 1981, but I've come so much to appreciate him. I think he's one of the great songwriters of our era, if not the greatest. And I will say that I think he might. There's an argument to be made for the fact that Paul Simon is possibly the greatest songwriter of our era. Uh, and I think the sign of a, a great songwriter is somebody who can take emotions that many of us have and have experienced and put them down into lyrics or poetry and really have them hit home. And when I hear lyrics like, first thing I remember when you came into my life, I said, I'm going to get that girl no matter what I do. Oof, that line just sends shivers up my spine because I, I've had that experience um, probably more than once in my life. Um where you kind of fall in love instantly. And I, I just think it's a, a, a great lyric and a great song. Here's from the Simon and Garfunkel free concert in Central Park. Here's like... Everybody just seemed to move and I turned my head. 
see, that's another great ending. That's how all songs should end. Uh, and of course, it's a live version. So of course, it's going to end that way. But man, all songs should end that way. So I had the pleasure of going to two high schools uh, as a young man. I went to Regis uh, from my freshman and sophomore year. And then I was invited not to come back and uh, and transferred to uh, Xavier. Uh, both schools are in Manhattan. So I had the pleasure of taking the subway system all four years in high school. One of the things that I loved and will always appreciate about Regis, my two years there at Regis, is we kind of had this uh, cassette trading thing going on with uh, a number of the uh, my schoolmates at Regis where if you bought an album, the first thing you did was was make a cassette copy or even multiple cassette copies. And you would trade them with some classmates. And I will always be appreciative. And my entire life probably changed based on me trading a cassette one day. If memory serves me correctly, the cassette that I had was the Go-Go's debut album, Beauty and the Beat. And I offered that to uh, a classmate. And he traded me for a cassette that the only thing it had written on it was the, the words Dirty Mind. That's it. I didn't even know. I remember popping this this cassette tape into my Walkman, which I, I had a Walkman at the time. Like I said, I used to take the subways from um, Queens into Manhattan. And so that was about an hour long commute. And, and so I loved my Walkman and I loved the fact that I could pop a cassette into it and, you know, listen to an album. And, and it was usually the length of an album that, that took me from home to school or from school to home. So it was a great invention, even if it was the, you know, the size of a cigar box on my belt. Uh, it still was incredibly convenient. And uh, so I, I tr- made this trade one day and I got this cassette that just had the words Dirty Mind written on it. And uh, I popped it into my Walkman and uh, listened to it on the way home and was completely and utterly moved and blown away and affected for the rest of my life and uh, it really it took me a while to figure out that Dirty Mind was the name of the album that the artist was uh, somebody by the name of Prince who I had not heard of by that point this was Prince's third album but I had never heard of him before this and I've actually you know obviously gone back and listened to those first two albums and I don't know how I didn't get turned on to him earlier but uh, Dirty Mind is a if you know anything about Prince it's it's a kind of a right hand turn from his first two albums which are very R&B and kind of disco driven and Dirty Mind takes a turn for him uh, into a little bit more punk rock kind of early new wave kind of sounding of the early 80s. But the lyrics, oh gosh, the lyrics for a kid who is just coming into his own kind of sexually and kind of discovering who he was sexually, the lyrics on Dirty Mind kind of blew me away that anybody could sing about things that Prince was singing about were... um, were pretty amazing. So I'm going to play one of the raunchiest songs off of this album. It's a song called Head. The The whole concept here is that the singer of the song uh, receives oral sex from a bride who's on the way to her wedding. I have been a mobile DJ now for 29 years, and I can tell you that this has never happened to me. I've never had this uh, experience happen to me, uh, but it still makes for an interesting song. Here's Head off of Dirty <laughs> Thank you. 
So a lot of classic rock that I came to uh, be familiar with and and really appreciate in my life, I, I came to later. I didn't discover a lot of that in you know in the '70s as it was being released, but kind of later in life. And the Rolling Stones are a perfect example of that. I, I don't think I had more than just a mild awareness and, and appreciation for the Rolling Stones uh, as a kid. And then at some point in high school, in I was still in Regis at the time. Um, the Rolling Stones' greatest hits album called Hot Rocks was kind of floating around. Um, and I got my hands on it at one point, um, and I remember bringing it home and listening to it and really kind of catching up, if you will, on the the history or some of the hits, at least, of this rock band that I have come to understand is one of the greatest um, really ever. And so I'm going to play one of the songs from uh, Hot Rocks. It's called Under My Thumb. I play this one just because, well, for two reasons. I, I've always loved the the drum beat intro of this. I, I've loved the urgency of it, uh, and I've loved the way it just kind of introduces itself and says, you know, boom, 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 here's a great song, and, and it launches into it. But also the lyrics. I mean, as a young kid who, again, is still just kind of struggling with his sexuality, for for a song to be sung like this where 
the singer has the female under his thumb uh, was pretty unique for me because at that point I was pretty much at the beck and call and at the mercy of any girl that would give me more than you know two seconds of her time. So for me to hear a lyric like the squirming dog who just had her day was, I don't know, kind of weird and um, heartening maybe that someday I wouldn't be just, you know, overwhelmed in relationships. Here's Under My Thumb.
So the early 80s, at some point, I got my hands on a book called No One Here Gets Out Alive. And uh, it's a biography of not only Jim Morrison, but The Doors. And uh, similar to The Rolling Stones, I didn't really have much of an appreciation for The Doors and their music prior to this. And and reading this book, I really kind of got turned on and I, I bought a couple of Doors albums and uh, and got into their music. So, you know, maybe a decade or more even since they stopped recording. And so I will always appreciate uh, No One Here Gets Out Alive, the book, for really two different things, because they, the book itself turned me on to The Doors, and, and The Doors are probably now one of my favorite bands. But the, the book also kind of turned me on to reading books about bands and artists and musical genres, and it's something that I have done ever since reading No One Here Gets Out Alive. As a matter of fact, if I made a list of every book I've ever read in my life, probably a third to maybe even half of them are uh, are biographies about uh, music, which is probably one of the reasons why I love to tell the stories that I tell so much uh, about music, because I just, I've read so many uh, of the, the background stories. I'm going to play one of my favorite door songs. I love the beat of this. I've always loved the opening lick. I actually think it's uh, underappreciated when I when I see a list of you know songs with you know the greatest opening licks of of rock. I'm always shocked that Peace Frog never made that doesn't make that list because I just think it's a it's a great opening lick. It's a great song. It's it's typical Jim Morrison kind of dark imagery uh, in the song. Here's Peace Frog. <laughs>
So by 1983, I'm, I'm a pretty big Prince fan. Uh, and as such, I kind of got caught up in the whole Michael Jackson versus Prince rivalry. I don't think that ever existed between the artists. Never really heard either one of them say much uh, about each other, but uh, certainly among the fan base, it was like you either had to love one or the other, which was weird because I was dating a, a girl at the time named Allison who, uh, I don't know if she was a huge Michael Jackson fan, but she certainly had the Thriller album when it came out, as did everyone back in 1983, and, and loved it and played it nonstop. We were just also getting to that age where we could go to the clubs, and, and we used to love going dancing every once in a while. And I remember vividly hearing the the lead song off of Thriller, Want to Be Starting Something, in a nightclub. And as much as I didn't want to love Michael Jackson, man, I had to appreciate that song. And, and I remember dancing to it in a, in a nightclub with the big sound system and the big lighting system. And especially the breakdown at the end of that song where it just breaks into the Mama Say, Mama Sa, Mama Kusta chant. Uh, and then slowly the, the horns come back in and then slowly it comes out of the break. It, listening to that and hearing that in a, in a nightclub on a, on a huge sound system was just an unforgettable experience and something I'll always remember. So as much as I didn't uh, love Michael Jackson as much as Prince, I had to give props for Thriller. Uh, and especially the song that kicks off the album. Just a, an awesome, awesome track.
I was a fairly big police fan throughout the uh, 80s, especially their their last album, Synchronicity. I was lucky enough to uh, go to the Shea Stadium concert that they did um, when pretty much at the height of their fame, um, when Synchronicity was was everywhere, number one album, number one song, Every Breath You Take. And uh, and then when the police broke up, I, I remained um, you know pretty much a Sting fan, bought his first album, which was uh, Dream of the Blue Turtle. And then when his second studio album came out, Nothing Like the Sun, I remember buying that and uh, listening to it and listening to it and reading the liner notes and just over and over and over again. It was one of those albums that just never, ever left the turntable. And uh, to this day, I would argue that it is the greatest album ever. I know some people would scoff at that, but in my opinion... Nothing Like the Sun is probably the most complete album. It is Sting at his uh, absolute creative high watermark of creativity, both writing and musicianship and who he had surrounded himself with as far as great musicians and putting together a great band. Um, and so I-, I could play the entire album. I could play any track off of that album just to show you my appreciation for it. Uh, but the one I'm going to go to and and play is the song that I always here in my head and often quote on social media and and will often play whenever there is a tragedy which happens far too often far too many school shootings and far too many terrorist attacks in my opinion and far too many times where i have the opportunity to quote the song um it reminds me of well just how fragile we all are
So in the late 80s, I bought a motorcycle and uh, the motorcycle had a cassette player in the fairing. And um, what I came to find out was that I had to play something really kicking for it to kind of cut through the the sound of a motorcycle. So as much as I loved Sting's Nothing Like the Sun, which I just played for you, it was really nothing on that album. I remember making a cassette of that and playing it uh, on my motorcycle and I couldn't hear a thing because it, it just wasn't ballsy enough and loud enough and, and it didn't cut through. Um, so something like Nothing Like the Sun was perfect for listening to at home. Uh, but when I was driving around or riding around on my motorcycle, I needed something louder and and more kicking. And uh, I had a cassette of Billy Idol's Vital Idol that was perfect. I could crank that up on my motorcycle, and it sounded cool, and I and it would cut through the engine uh, noise, and I was able to hear it. And so I will always associate that Billy Idol music, obviously not Money Money because it's become a bit of a gig song, but anything else on that album or anything else by Billy Idol, I kind of always associate with my my motorcycle riding days riding around Queens as a, as a young man. Um, here's Rebel Yell, More, 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 one of my favorites by Billy Idol.
So I mentioned how Nothing Like the Sun, in my opinion, is one of the great albums of all time, if not the greatest, and it's kind of sting at his most creative. Um, 1987, Prince came out with Sign of the Times, and I would make the same argument about that double LP. I think this is Prince at his most creative. The entire album is tremendous. Uh, it is a mix of R&B and funk and and ballads and and he's obviously still very religious with uh, a song like The Cross on that album. Uh, I'm proud of the fact that he's one of the first artists in Sign of the Times to make an allusion towards uh, the AIDS crisis, which was really just starting. Um, but this album, the entire album to me, is is Prince's uh, best work and uh, should have been a triple album. Anyone who uh, knows enough about Prince, he had submitted it to Warner Brothers as a triple album. And they asked him to kind of trim it down. And so it went from uh, six sides to four sides. But it is still just amazing, amazing piece of work. And I'm going to play my favorite song off of it. I love the guitar work at the end of this. You know, a lot of people, uh, it took them years and years later to discover that Prince was such a great guitarist. I think for many non-Prince fans, that moment came when he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And they did the uh, the version of While My Guitar Gently Weeps and, and Prince got the solo on it. I think that was a very eye-opening moment for a lot of non-Prince fans uh, when they said, wow, this guy can really, he can play. Uh, but for us Prince fans, we've always known that. And uh, I think it's demonstrated very well on this next song. This is I Could Never Take the Place of Your Mind. <laughs> 